Welcome to the Trinity Western University Chapel podcast. It is our prayer that these chapel talks would bless your heart and they would draw you closer to our Lord. We offer them to the glory of God and for the good of the world. So we have entered into that time in the church calendar that is classically called Eastertide, which means I get to say to you, as was said to you probably on Easter morning, dear friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, Christ is risen. Yes, and for centuries, for millennia, the church has responded, he is risen indeed. So Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Absolutely, Christ is risen indeed. I know that this time of the year is unbelievably stressful for some of you. Depressing. Starts a feeling of desolation. The pressure's on. And my hope in the next 15 or 16 minutes or so is to offer a word of encouragement from the Gospel of John, the 20th chapter. So if you would like to lift up your hearts and listen to God's word, friends, hear these words from the beloved disciple John. John chapter 20. Brennan read the latter portion. I read the earlier portion. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from its entrance So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but didn't go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head, the cloth. Well, the cloth was folded up by itself, separated from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They did not yet understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary, Mary stood outside the tomb crying, As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, don't hold on to me for I have yet to return to the father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I'm returning to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It was not a little bit strange. My wife and I decided to go and visit my parents who live at Elam Village in Surrey. It's a long-term seniors living center. They 
live on the third floor of a very nice apartment building in room 302. And everything started out as it normally does. There's two doors that you have to enter in through. The first one is unlocked. And then you go to the intercom and put in their number. They answer and then buzz you in. And all of this went perfectly well. They buzzed us in. We went in, walking toward the elevator. The most unusual thing up to that point was that somebody had come out of the elevator and you almost never see anybody in the foyer of that place at all. It is very quiet, hardly anybody stirs, but this time somebody came out of the elevator. We, of course, didn't think much of it and continued on up, pressed number three, went to the third floor, got off, walked down the hall, everything looked just as it usually did, went to my parents' door. It's their custom to leave it unlocked if they know we're coming, so we just walked in. I took off my shoes at the front door, as I want to do, said, Mom, Dad? And there was no answer. And I thought, okay, well, maybe they're in the bathroom or in the bedroom, just give them a second. My dad can buzz us in from anywhere. And so I began walking in further into their room, past the kitchen, and I came into the dining room, and this is where things became rather strange indeed. My dad was a furniture salesman, owned a furniture store in North Vancouver, and so had very nice furniture and very fine taste, as far as I'm concerned. And somehow, in his old age, I noticed right then and there that he had decided to change out their beautiful dining room table for another one, very old, very weathered. And I thought, well, that's nostalgic and awfully strange. And I went in a little bit further and noticed that their beautiful lazy boy chairs that they have had been switched out for an old green couch. And at this point, my feelings were starting to be impacted. I was a little offended. Mom and Dad, like, why get rid of the stuff like you could give it to me? And as I looked around, I thought, oh my goodness, their heirloom bookshelves are gone. The Dutch bookshelves that they brought from Holland are gone. They changed them out for these. What on earth were they thinking? And at this point, I began talking out loud. I'm like, mom, dad. And then everything changed. All of my perceptions, all of my interpretations, and all of my feelings up to that point were totally and radically transformed. One word from my wife with the presentation of one simple fact. Ed, she said with a whisper that was like a yell, we're in the wrong room. <laughs> what had happened is that we had gotten off on the second floor. Unbeknownst to us, the person that was in there and that had come out had ostensibly pressed the second button. We just pressed the third and assumed that when the doors opened, lo and behold, of course it was our floor. We didn't notice a thing. And as I was going through, I had this interpretive framework for interpreting what I was seeing. I had my confirmation bias, if you will, and I interpreted everything through that grid. So I saw that my parents changed out their furniture and my feelings followed my interpretations of the fact. But then one word from my wife, we're in the wrong room. We thought we were in 302, we were actually in 202. And in a flash, all of my perceptions, all of my interpretations, and concomitantly, all of my feelings changed. I went through being dumbfounded and befuddled and a little bit angry to being filled with a perfectly pure adrenaline, the same kind of adrenaline you had as a little kid when you were in the basement, and you were sure that there was a boogeyman down there chasing you up the stairs. Because we'd broken into someone's home, I'm almost 50 years old, and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, get out of here quickly. 
My wife was in the hall, by the way, before I even got out. I grabbed my shoes and put them on as we got outside. Now, enter in John 20, Easter morning. John cares very much about this principle of interpretation, about frameworks of interpretation and how we're perceiving the world in light of the resurrection. And he constructs his narrative in order to show us a pattern. Not once, not twice, not three times, but four times, we see the same dynamic at play and it focalizes or focuses on Mary. Although the beloved and Peter make a cameo. Watch this. Mary, early in the morning on the first day of the week, moves toward the tomb. She sees that the stone has been rolled away. She has a presupposition that crucified messiahs don't rise. Fair enough. And so she immediately interprets the evidence in front of her in accord with her framework of understanding. According to her confirmation bias, they have taken the Lord. She runs back to the beloved and to Peter and tells them, they've taken the Lord. They believe her. They run to the tomb to find out and to see for themselves. And indeed, the one outruns the other. Peter, brash, goes into the tomb. He sees linen sitting there. And strangely, as though a burglar who had taken Jesus was suddenly struck with a moment of civility, folds up the cloth and puts it by Jesus' head. They see that, but they see what they know they must see given their interpretation of events. And so they too see and believed, we are told which because they didn't yet understand the scriptures means they believed what Mary told them. Some burglars had come and taken Jesus' body. They added insult to injury and injury to insult already. Mary comes back and then looks into the tomb and she sees not only the rolled away stone, not only the linen, not only maybe the face cloth, but she sees two angels She sees two angels without seeing them. Oh yes, Mary's in that position of seeing without seeing because she has her interpretation of how this world must be and how therefore she must interpret things. She's filled with grief, despondency, dejection, lament of the soul. She sees only through her veil of tears. Yes, and they ask her why she's crying. Her answer is predictable. She doesn't see angels asking her this question. She just sees somebody who might help her find her Lord to give him a proper burial. Apparently she looks out of the tomb from where she's standing at the entrance of the mouth of the tomb and she, the text tells us what? (laughs) Sees Jesus. Oh yeah, she sees Jesus without seeing Jesus. She sees without seeing because she has her interpretive framework for what must be the truth. And everything is filtered down through that interpretive grid. So she sees a gardener. And hilariously, in a moment of Jehannine irony, she accuses Jesus of being the one who maybe stole Jesus' body. Sir, if you've taken him, just let me know where you put him so I can go and get him. She doesn't want to punish anybody. She just wants her Lord back. Mary, Peter, and the beloved disciples see everything through their preconceived notion because of their presupposition about what must be true. Everything's interpreted through that. But then, a single word, the presentation of one great fact, and all of her perceptions, all of her interpretations about the world, and with those interpretations being made new, 
all of her feelings will be instantaneously, immediately, and suddenly transformed. The word, Mary. The reality, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. She runs back to the beloved disciple and Peter and the other disciples and say, I have seen the Lord. Indeed, he is risen. He's risen indeed. She has to reinterpret everything now, doesn't she? That stone that was rolled away from the mouth of the tomb, that wasn't evidence of burglars going and violently stealing the body of the Lord. Rather, it's evidence that some angels came down and in celebration of the resurrection of the Son of God began to engage in a little rock and roll, as N.T. Wright likes to put it. Oh yeah, it was celebration time. Like Jesus needed that stone to be rolled away, thank you very much. He who will later appear in the upper room as Brennan read for us. Oh no, I think they were playing. I think they're having a little bit of fun. The linen cloth lying here and then the face cloth as though a soldier's hit by a moment of civility. Hello? Hello? No, no, the evidence always pointed in a different direction. If only they were able to see, if only their preconceived notions didn't stand in their way, of course, it makes sense. Not that a soldier would fold up a face cloth, but that when Jesus <gasps> took his first breath and became alive again, that the first thing you do, right? What are you gonna do? Your face is covered. Stand up. Okay, I'm not good at trades, but. <clears throat> ah, that makes sense. And then the angels early on the first day of the week. Why, why does John tell us one at the head, one at the foot? Ah, what looks like that? Mm, how about the Ark of the Covenant, which is in the Holy of Holies, the very presence of God with angels flanking the Ark of the Covenant? What is John saying? Jesus' tomb has become now the axis mundi. It's become the axis way between heaven and earth because he is the temple of God. Here, the presence of God is made known. Early on the first day of the week, sound like a new creation event. It is because the resurrection of the Son of God means new creation for the world. Ah, that's why Mary misunderstands him for a gardener. Again, it's Jehanhine humor. He calls her woman. You have the man and the woman in the garden at the dawn of a new creation. Oh, everything looks different on this side of the resurrection. Everything now, all of our perceptions, all of our interpretations, and yea, all of our feelings can begin to be transformed by this great truth. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. But here's my thing today. It's despite my proclamation of this fact, despite the fact that we moved through Holy Week and we came into Easter, I am imagining that this has left us, some of us, cold. This has begun to sound to some of us like a slogan. Christ is risen, is risen indeed. Yay. Yippee. It doesn't make an impact. It doesn't go deep. It doesn't seem real. It sounds like an abstraction. It sounds like good news for somebody else, but maybe, maybe not for me. We need to see one more thing from this text. Oh, yes, we do. When is it? This is really important. When is it that Mary, who sees without seeing, has her eyes open and sees the one in her midst for who he really is? When is it? It's when he says her name. Mary. Rabboni! 
Mary, teacher! John is subtle with his artistry, but he's very intentional. Some of us need to hear the proclamation that Christ has risen, not some kind of general statement, not some kind of cosmic statement, even though it is, not some kind of statement for a collectivity, not some kind of statement for a group, but a statement that is radically, irreducibly, marvelously, magnificently, prodigiously personal. Dave, I'm here, I'm risen for you. Mary, Celeste, Billy, Mauricio, Zara, Amir, put your name there. It's me, I came for you. Michelle and I and a couple of our kids were walking, uh, watching the, a movie called Taken with Liam Neeson. It's hard to listen to Liam Neeson, by the way, without hearing Optimus Prime. He's a father in this movie, and his daughter gets kidnapped by a sex trafficking ring, and he's got this special set of skills. And he goes, and he chases her down, and he finds all the bad guys, and he beats up the bad guys. And after an hour and a half of drama of him trying to find his daughter, he finally breaks into this room after beating up the biggest bad guy there was, right? It's like the prince of this world, and he's a redeemer figure. He goes into this room, and he says, Kimmy. And she says, Dad! And she runs to him, and she hugs him, and she says, you came for me. Friends, this is the gospel. Our Lord, who looks at us as sons and daughters, is more precious than we can imagine ourselves, has fought heaven and earth in order to break in through the door. And we can say with him, we can say with Kimmy, you came for me. Yes, he came, not as some kind of abstraction, not as some kind of theoretical idea, not as some kind of theological mumbo jumbo. He came for you. And this means that all of your perceptions, all of your interpretations of your current experience need to be filtered through this one great fact. Christ is risen and he's risen indeed. And this means the future is secure. We can begin living out of that today. Your identity, please let me tell you again, isn't dependent on your grades. Your value isn't dependent on your great looks. No, these things matter, but put them in their proper place. You're gonna be just fine. All this will pass and all things will be made new. When Christ says to us, like he said to Lazarus, it's time to wake up and we will. So take great heart as you enter into these next two challenging weeks. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.